In the episode 1475 of the FDH Lounge is brought to you by Sportsology, delivering unconventional columns and webcasts about sports, TV, music, movies, and more. Follow them on the web at sportsology.com. The FDH Lounge. You want to schedule your life around it. A long time ago, on a gloomy, wet Cleveland spring night, two men stand alone amidst the late night drizzle. Their voices echo across the vacant station parking lot as they debate the merits of the great American radio show that have been missing for far too long. On that night, an idea was born. That idea became the FDH Lounge. Welcome to the FDH Lounge. Hello, everyone. Welcome to FDH Lounge mini episode 1475. This is FDH managing partner Rick Morris here. And uh, I have the crew that we had a couple weeks back for previewing the NFL draft in 2022. FDH Lounge fellow original dignitaries Jason Jones and Chris Galloway. And we're going to be getting into uh, what happened this past weekend here, uh, what we thought might happen, what did happen. It was very, very hard to forecast this. Uh, This is the kind of draft, uh, as they say, that is like trying to uh, eat coffee with a fork as far as predicting what's going to happen. And uh, again, my mock draft stands as a stark evidence of that. Uh, I did get the Kenny Pickens pick right, uh, so give me credit for that. But uh, it was very, very difficult to forecast everything that was going to happen. Uh, it was very, very topsy turvy, and that comes from, and will be the, this is going to be the recurring theme of this. This comes from the fact that it was not a particularly deep draft, and you could even question uh, the upside of the best players at some of these different positions. So we'll get into that, and uh, again, we'll bring in uh, first here uh, the man whose uh, rankings and top 150 powered uh, our draft guide, which you can still find on the main page of FantasyDraftHelp.com, Pro Football Draftology 2022, our senior editor, Jason Jones. Jason, good to have you in, my man. Looking forward to breaking this down with you. Yeah, this was, uh, this was an event. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it, it was very interesting. We'll get into some of the more gritty details, I guess. But one thing I, I did want to just throw out real quick that I thought was interesting Um there was the sense of what was consensus, and that always changes. But when you look at this first round, there was the, the notion that somebody wasn't going to go before a certain number, and they went before that number. Or there were two guys at one position that one guy was clearly thought of as better, and the other guy was right there. But the second guy went got before the first guy. Yep. So that should have been some indication that every team was going to have their own version of this because of the lack of depth. Yeah, and it was a real value-be-damned kind of a situation because it was very, very hard to trade down in this draft. It was exceedingly difficult to do so, and uh, we'll be getting into that and much more uh, with the other member of the booth here, uh, the other hardy perennial of our NFL draft coverage, fellow original lounge dignitary, my good pal from way back when, Chris Galloway. Chris, good to have you on, my man. I know you have some distinct thoughts on what we just saw. Rick, uh, good to be with you as always, and um, yeah, I thought it was an interesting draft from uh, uh, an overall sense of the amount of trading I thought sort of verified my suspicion about the 2022 draft and the 2023 draft, and I can get into that specifically as we walk through the show. I think so. I know we're a little bit of where you're going to go with that, and that is definitely something we need to talk about vis-a-vis strength of the 
various draft classes. What I want to mention also here, our other guide that we recommend that you check out, and it's going to be a massive part of our discussion here, uh, available also on the main page at fantasygrafthelp.com, the 2022 FDH post-draft NFL rankings. And we have a couple of different categories here, as well as updated power rankings for next season and a list of remaining needs for each team coming out of the draft. But the three categories for ranking the draft, just the value of players taken based on the top 150. So how did teams do in terms of getting the best players? That's just a raw number right there. And we have another metric that is based half on that and half what teams did to fill their needs. And then there is just one where it is nothing but assessing teams filling their needs. And it doesn't really take anything with the top 150 into account. It's just a matter of uh, what was the different uh, uh, percentages of needs filled. So in terms of going through this, uh, I'll just give the top 10 and the bottom 10 in each category uh, here. Uh, for the top 10 in value, number one, Baltimore with 805. I mean, it was massive how much uh, they were ahead of the next team there. Number two, the New York Jets at 625. From there, the rest of the top 10. Green Bay, 596. Houston, 581. Kansas City, 565. Seattle, 534. Jacksonville, 480. Tennessee, 475. Detroit, 468. And Indianapolis, 410. The bottom 10 in the category drop all the way down to Tampa Bay, 264. Chicago, 241, Buffalo, 229, Cleveland, 222, Las Vegas, 165, San Francisco, 130, Denver, 127, New England, 107, LA Rams, 21, the Miami Dolphins, 15. Whoops. Uh, As far as the value and needs metric, the 50-50, number one, Baltimore, 15-44, once again, towering over the rest of the field because Kansas City is two at 13-65, a very strong number. Ahead of three, Houston, 1281. Then from there, Green Bay, 1221. Seattle at 1184. Dallas at 1125. New York Jets, 1075. Indianapolis, 1038. Cleveland, 1022. Philadelphia, 1012. Drop down to the bottom 10 here. Pittsburgh at 559. Las Vegas, 515. Washington, 478. Cincinnati 461, New England 457, Denver 427, LA Chargers 414, San Francisco 280, and then the same two teams at the bottom as the other category, LA Rams 71, Miami 65. And then percentage of needs filled. Cleveland and Kansas City did what nobody did last year, filled 100% of their needs, and we'll talk more about that as we go along. Uh, Number three, Baltimore at 86%, and then from there, Dallas at 80%, Houston 58%, Carolina 57%, Seattle 56%, and then a big tie for 8th place. Atlanta, Indianapolis, Philadelphia, Arizona, Buffalo, Tampa Bay, and Green Bay at 50%. Not a big surprise. 50% is kind of an easy number to land on. You drop down to, let's call it a tie for 24th place. Let's start there on the bottom end. Detroit and Pittsburgh at 29%. Cincinnati, 25%. Tie for 27th place, Washington and San Francisco at 17%. Uh, The L.A. Chargers and Tennessee tied at 13%. Miami and the L.A. Rams, 0%. Did not fill any of their needs. Just a quick note here on some editorial discretion in the process here. 
It wasn't used in the case of Miami, but I want to explain why. They used a third-round pick on a linebacker, but it wasn't in the top 50. We're not crediting them because there wasn't value with the pick, which it pains me, pains me, pains me to say, I have to say. Uh, toward the top, Cleveland, 100%. We didn't have any kickers in the top uh, 150. We never do, but I'm giving Cleveland credit for that because they're the only team where I had kicker listed as being a stark need and they filled it with the best kicker in the draft. So even though it goes outside of the top 150, they'd filled their other three needs first. I'm giving the Browns credit on that one. So we'll start here with, uh, with, with Jason, just on the overall numbers here, as far as how they coincide with how you saw the winners and the losers. Before we jump into that, I think I want to jump in real fast and just say, again, because <laughs> the uh, percentage of needs filled, 186, 80, 58. <laughs> so yeah. Just, let's hold on to that. That's important. Um, we'll see it throughout. Obviously, Baltimore goes without saying. Baltimore, and I could feel it. By the time they picked the center Linderbaum in the uh, middle of the first, I, could, I almost texted you, Rick, to say uh, it's going to be bad because Baltimore is already scoring so exceedingly high with uh, Hamilton falling as he did. Uh, and most of their draft is really, really solid. Again, the Jets, really great. Kansas City had some surprises with some really good value. And then when we jump down, especially towards the bottom, this is just confirming a theory I have. I think there were some teams that just, where they were picking, maybe they just didn't like what they were looking at and just kind of went off book a little bit. Uh, Miami, the Rams, listen, we all know Belichick is a genius. And the first time he did this, it was with Gerard Mayo almost 20 years ago. He's made a habit and a career of doing this. But when he went cold strain in the first round, I literally fell out of my chair. So there are absolutely teams in here that kind of threw caution to the wind when it came to value and just found guys, maybe situationally or schematically, that just really fit what they want to do and said, damn the value. So my overall take on it is, yeah, the numbers ended up playing this out relatively accurately. The one exception, or a handful of exceptions, I would say, is I, in general, not analytically, just on the surface, I like some of what Detroit did, um, New York Jets specifically. I think the Saints had a couple picks. I think Pittsburgh flat out went to bed. And then yet you still have some teams in here like uh, Buffalo. An argument could be made for Arizona that I kind of like. And then I look at the Chargers who are right in the middle, and I absolutely hate their trap. So there's some subjectivity to that. But if you're looking at just the numbers, the numbers predicted this before we even saw the commissioner on stage. That's true, and I want to make this point here because last year was the first year that we had incorporated percentage of team needs filled into our post-draft analysis, and I wish I had thought of this for previous years because it's one of the biggest drums I've been beating uh, as somebody that was a long-suffering Browns fan, uh, a phrase that I have used. It's now funny when I hear some of my friends echoing my phrase back to me criticizing teams. I love hearing that, being the egotist that I am. Create a hole, fill a hole. It was something that the Browns would excel at. They'd cut their best linebacker and then use their first-round pick on a linebacker and act like they made the team better. Uh, but uh, as far as filling needs, last year, 
this jumps off the page at me. Who was number one at, at 67% last year, so teams were less successful? Number one last year at 67% was Cincinnati. Now, clearly the offensive line accounted for the rest of the 33%, but teams that did well last year, Dallas at 50%, Kansas City 50 San Francisco 50 Arizona 40 That was a tie for sixth, by the way. And there's exceptions to the rule, yes, but you look at the bottom, and an exception to the rule in 30th place last year was Buffalo with only 11%. Well, that didn't hobble them like I thought it would. But the two teams at zero last year were Houston and Seattle. So that should be a little bit of a flashing red light to the Rams and Miami. I know that the Rams are very arrogant about the draft and, and think that they can do it all through other means. But, uh, you know, you look at how this went last year, and it didn't correlate perfectly to what teams did. The Browns, for example, were tied for second last year at 50%, and you can make the sad trombone sound for what their season ended up like. But uh, it definitely is something we should keep an eye on here, teams that did the best job of filling their needs. And like I said, we had four teams score above the high from last year, Cincinnati at 67%. Again, Cleveland and KC at 100, Baltimore at 86, Dallas at 80. So, Chris, on the totality here of the numbers, and it's a big numbers soup that I've been spitting out the last couple of minutes here, but uh, the things that really jump out the most and that coincided most with what you were observing at the time. Well, I, you know, first I want to say I've always appreciated the approach that FDH has taken to analyzing the draft and trying to be very analytical. Thank you. In terms of assigning concrete data points and, and, and scoring to players beforehand and then ranking them and now putting in the remaining needs percentages as part of that equation, I think was a great uh, next uh, variant to add to the equation. Appreciate it. it. it always, the effort you put into this, I have always laughed at the fact that for a long time you would really, really shit on analytics and football. <laughs> <laughs> and yet you apply them like a, like a, like some sort of a scientist yourself with your, with your beakers and, and goggles and, and, and whatnot. So I, I've always appreciated the approach. I think it makes the ranking that FDH does far superior than the ones that most just random Main Street sports sites do where they just throw a letter on based on, you know, one or two players in a class. All that being said, let me let me give you um, some thoughts on, on how I saw it playing out. You know, we talked about this before, somewhat before the draft, and, you know, I think a lot of us saw the draft this year as, you know, a middling class. Uh, Jason talked about it as a great opportunity to find you know, role players and players that will fit your system and fill a depth chart so you can find value, but you've got to be strategic about it and you've got to be, you know, you've got to be very, um, you know, uh, cautious in how you go about your draft. But his point that he made was there were going to be players, um, even though the rankings overall that we were assigning to some of these position groups weren't great, there were guys in there that if you run a certain defense, and on third down, he could be a great third down pass rusher in this defense, those types of things. So I think what we saw with the volume of trades going on, on on Thursday through Saturday showed that that was right. And that most of these teams viewed this draft as an opportunity to find depth, situational, and scheme guys that could fit what they're trying to do. So, um, and, and I think all the moving up and moving down, and you saw uh, just so many trades 
that I think that that was evidence of how these teams viewed viewed it as well. And, and you know, using somebody like the Browns, uh, you know, it, it screamed to me that you know Andrew Barry viewed this draft the same way. I, I think he, the player he wanted at forty four wasn't there, and he had no hesitation to bail out and you know executed that variation of his plan. Um, and other, you saw other teams do it. New England clearly, I think, felt the same way as well. I don't like some of the picks they made, but they treated the draft very similarly. On the same side, a lot of people think 2023 is going to be a much stronger class, and you saw teams, I think the smart teams, of course, trying to add draft picks uh, for 2023, you know, giving up picks this year for next year, hoarding picks. So we saw that with a lot of teams. And so I think that also solidified that, like we think, next year the teams agree that the, the draft class top to bottom is going to be deeper and have more talent. So they're moving back. You know, then, it, and, and so, but there are some teams that did very, very well uh, this week, this past weekend. You know, the one that jumps out to me is, is the Jets. I, I mean, I just love what they did. They were aggressive. And, and I thought that they went out and, and you know, and they got players that a lot of a lot of uh, folks had at the top of their boards in all these position groups, whether it's Sauce Gardner, Garrett Wilson. You know, some people thought Jermaine Johnson was a top two or three edge rusher. Some people had Brees Hall as a top running back. You know, uh, Jeremy Ruck- Ruckert with a great potential. I mean, I just loved what the, what the Jets did. I, I you know, I, I, I have no fault in it. A team that had a lot of needs, and they went out and they attacked them. And they got some really talented guys. Um, unfortunately, of course, as is always the case, uh, we saw Baltimore do do a great job. Uh, you know, Jason talked about that. Um, you know, I, I sit there and dread during these drafts and just watch Ravens year after year just draft so smartly. I hate it. But getting Kyle Hamilton at 14, getting Linderbaum at 25, with Jabo, you know, a prospect for edge rush, you know, he's going to come back in the second half of the season. Travis Jones, the defensive tackle. I mean, I, I just, they went on and on and on and on and on. All these guys that I kept going, oh, man, they're just adding talent and depth. Like, Baltimore, year after year after year, just never failed. You know, and again, eyeball test, it's always interesting to me how the eyeball test fits with your rankings, you know, Rick, because, you know, I, I thought Kansas City also had a great draft. And, you know, you've got them right up there at the top. Um and, you know, the same thing with Baltimore. Again, my eyeball test told me great draft for those teams. Um, I thought Cleveland was, you know, kind of a B, but I thought what they did do um, in terms of David Bell and, uh, you know, and uh, Winfrey, I thought were great picks. Um, and I was a huge fan of the kicker pick. I know a lot of experts were, were sort of poo-pooing that, you know, how can you take a kicker in the fourth round? Well, when you have the worst kicking game last year and you desperately need a kicker, getting a kicker at the end of the fourth round is not exactly some outrageous thing. That guy is going to be responsible for how many points, right? how many game-on-the-line situations. Definitely. Um, it's easy to say, it's easy to say don't draft a kicker, but, but the fact is they are responsible for a lot of points every Sunday and, and responsible for a lot of success. I mean... The first time that kid, Cade York, goes and wins the Browns a game like he did at Florida in 2020 in the fog, 57 yards out, Browns fans would be like, oh, that's why you drafted kicker. Right. And you want to know what, for the 
fans that say, oh, well, they've done this before and it always fails. Then you know what you do if it fails again? Next year you draft another damn kicker until you get it right. Right. Um, we do that with every other position. Well, he's not working out a tackle. Let's go get another tackle. Why wouldn't you do that with kicker? Kicker seems to be the only position that people are like, well, you tried it once, never do it again. Well, I mean, that's dumb. So, I, you know, I, I, as a fan, I'm happy with what the Browns did. Again, I liked what the Jets did a lot. I know your ranking had them very low, um, and I, you know, and I suspect that that's mostly based on need. Uh, I think I love the players that they picked, right? Um, and your your value had them second. So, you know, I, I think there were a number of teams. I, it's funny. I commented on my buddy who was, we were watching the draft together. And I said, you know, is it just me or I? I think teams are getting smarter overall, right? About drafting. And their process, um, and and that tells me that analytics have really seeped into a lot of organizations um, because they all seem, you know, they don't all picks don't work out obviously, but the pro, what, what they're doing and where they're doing it, and the value, they seem to be getting smarter and smarter about it. You know, the, the sort of John Dorsey shoot from the hip, old school. You know, good foul. It, it seems to be fading. And the, sort of the Andrew Berry approach um, seems to be ascending. I, I agree with that, and I will say this. In terms of analytics, just to clarify something before here, I'm critical of analytics occupying too big a part of the space. I've always believed in it as a tool and smartly to be used. I'm going to start with something here. I'm going to start with you on this one, Chris. I alluded to this off here. There's a little bit of a philosophical thing, speaking of the poster child for analytics here, Andrew Barry and the Cleveland Browns. And in terms of the draft this year, and, and there are two specific schools of thought, and I know that you are of the school of thought of trust Andrew Barry based on the way the drafts have gone the last two years. I do want to point out two key differentials uh, from, the, from the last two drafts to this one, which is... Remember, the last two drafts that he did were very popular in real time. This year, not so much. But, uh, again, the public was at least smart enough to be able to discern bad drafts in real time, as they so often had the 20 years previously. Many of those were unpopular uh, at the very moment. And so that, as a metric here, I think cannot completely be discounted in terms of trust Andrew Berry. Well, he was doing the popular things, and the popular things worked the last two years. This year, a little less popularity, so I think it's way more of a wait-and-see kind of a thing rather than, well, he was successful the last two years, uh, believe in it this year. The other thing being, too, another criticism that I'd made during that 20-year span was uh, never planting the flag for this year. And yes, it might sound weird to say that because the Browns did fulfill all of their needs, albeit certainly not with some of the players I would have done if I were in that position. But as far as what you're saying about trading back, picks for next year, everything like that, I thought the entire point of everything the Browns have been doing is that uh, the future is now. They're going for a Super Bowl now. And again, it's not really compromising it that much. But I'm just saying it's a little bit reminiscent of how past regimes had done it, thinking more of next year and the year after. The last two years, there wasn't a whole lot of wait for next year in this. And this year, there was a little bit more of that. So the two counterpoints that I want to give you philosophically to what the Browns did, I'll let you guys both react, but I want to hear from you first, Chris, because I think I know where you're going to go with this, but you didn't know what my question was going to be, so I just want to hear off the top of your head your reaction to that. 
Well, I just, you know, in the classic SNL uh, point-counterpoint skit, Rick, you ignorant slut. <laughs> um, no, I, um, in, in all seriousness, I get what you're saying. and, and, and um, But I think that the, where you're drafting dictates some of that. I don't think Andrew Barry fell back just to fall back, okay? I think where he probably had players ranked, it did not make sense to stick in 44 if he wasn't getting the guy he wanted. Now, I, I you know, I wanted, you know, George Pickens. Me too. Um, he clearly decided, nope, I don't want him. You know, he decided he didn't like him. Right? For whatever reason, he wasn't his value there. But where he was clearly on Andrew's board, he decided to bail out on that. So, again, not privy to their board. But I think also you talk about winning now, right? Mm-hmm. The Browns are in a win-now mode, okay? There's nobody that thought, even if they kept their 44th pick, that they that the 44th pick is a make-or-break for this team in terms of Super Bowl contention. So from that standpoint, I get what you're saying. This isn't the fourth pick. It's like to come in and start. The 44th pick is like, probably should start, but maybe even the second half of the year because it's the second rounder, you know, I just I think where you're drafting helps to determine what your strategy may also be in those situations. So, and Andrew Berry's always preaching, you know, we have our perspective, which he's always said, you know, we're always balancing, right? We're always getting players in for development in the pipeline for the future. We're trying to win now, but we're also trying to, you know, we're not selling out now for the future. We're always trying to have a balance. He says that repeatedly. Um, at some point, we probably ought to listen that and realize that's how he's going to approach it. Um, but as far as their draft goes, I mean, I don't, you know, I love the Alex Wright pick because I think in a couple of years that guy could be the real deal to pair up with Miles Garrett. I mean, I liked it. He's a developmental guy, but man, I'm like, there's some real potential there. I think David Bell's going to play a lot this year, okay? And, I, and, and obviously, Kate York is. And I think Winfrey's going to get in the rotation this year. So they got guys that are going to play. But for the Browns, really, even though we are in win now, this, there was it's, it's, it was depth. It's depth. Count. It's, it's it was depth, and, and future development was clearly on tap for this year. Just it was it was obvious going into it. Okay, I knew you would have some interesting philosophical points on that. Uh, Jason, want to get your thoughts as well as uh, I know we had talked off air, and you have some specific thoughts on where uh, Andrew Barry uh, might have uh, deviated from the conventional wisdom in terms of some of the picks that he made. Yeah, um, I absolutely love how Mike... We'll just, or I'm sorry, how Chris will just uh, set these up for me so beautifully. So you ready for me to connect the two of you? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you're both right, and here's why. Martin Emerson, and I'm just using the Browns as a case study, I think you can make the argument for probably 75% of the league is approaching it in some sort of applied way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I honestly don't know what Washington and the Chargers are doing, but different story. I think that Emerson, the DB, was specifically picked to replace Hill. I think he's going to be the nickel corner for the most part. Okay. Uh, I think he's, we're going to see him a lot in blitz packages, and he's going to hug the line because, uh, as I told you, I, I watch him on tape now that he's been picked, from the lens of what they're looking for, and I see JOK as a DB in him like crazy, and that one feels like a schematic, beautiful pick that I completely understand. 
Alex Wright, since Chris brought him up, I think he's absolutely going to get the pick. But I think they also go into that pick knowing he's not the player they expect him to eventually become. He's not your defensive end you're going to line up opposite Miles Garrett on most downs. However, they do have a package that they've made jokes about in uh, press conferences before where if we assume Clowney comes back, where you could feasibly see this finally working, where you go Garrett, Winfrey, Wright, uh, Clowney, where you basically have three guys or four guys on the defensive line, all of which are trying to get to the quarterback, but the, the defensive tackles are stout enough that they can hold it if they check down to a run or something. David Bell, I absolutely agree. I think you can pencil him in right now. If they don't sign another receiver, you can pencil him right now at wide receiver two. And yes, I'm fast forwarding through training camp. But I, I honestly think when you put the tape on, he is such a perfect complement to what Cooper's going to bring that he's going to play a lot. Perry on Winfrey, I absolutely love it. I think that's perfect. Cade, we've talked about. Now, Jerome Ford, the Cincinnati running back, I absolutely believe is the Ernest Johnson in turn. We cannot keep him as a, as a running back three forever. That guy needs to be a split back or a future back somewhere. He's that good. Um, and that just speaks to what Barry's been doing this whole time, and he's anticipating moves, getting guys that can fill gaps so that we don't have hope. And he's done that by, I honestly believe that at some point, that factored into uh, the Newsom pick last year. So you can look at this and say, yeah, is Michael Woods and Deshaun Deaton developmental players? Probably. Uh, Isaiah Thomas, he could even get into the mix if he makes the team. The point here is, all of these picks follow a different sort of pattern, and I think that while, yes, there is something to be had in this draft, and yes, there is uh, capital to be gained for next year's draft, I think that he went in saying we're going to get players that will contribute to us competing now, even though they're very situational, in the hopes that they become something bigger later. But I, I think if I had to put sort of a bottom line on it, I am leaning towards Barry kind of knew what he was doing and just kind of looked at the board and said, guess what, guys? I don't like Christian Watson. I don't like that he's old. I don't like that he's raw. I don't like Traylon Burks for all the reasons I've been saying the whole time. <laughs> you know, there were just players that just were not on the board. And we have to accept that he, he's not looking at it from the perspective of here's the top 25 players in that position. Let's just go down the ranks. He's saying there's only a few guys in that mix that I even like at all. And if they're not there, I'm going to back up and make sure I have assets to get the guys I know are going to be there a little bit later. Um, so I think it's a little bit of both. But I do think that, um, I guess, to some degree, Barry and other GMs like him have earned some degree of, I'll trust you to some extent. Um, but, you know, if there were real... A-plus blue-chip players in this draft, and they were available 44, and he backed out. I'd have questions. I just don't see any of those guys in this draft. So I'm perfectly fine with what they did. And like I said, this, this extends to other teams as well. Uh, we can cite the New Englands of the world or, or even what the Jets and Philly did being a little bit more aggressive. But across the board, there's just so many examples of how there were no straight blue-chippers in this. So... He did what he thought the analytics or his scouting department thought was best. And I'm okay with that. Well, very interesting perspectives. And again, the Browns, just uh, the hometown uh, team here for all of us North Coasters, just happened to be 
an interesting case study in terms of the philosophy of the draft this year. I want to ask you two guys also, too, on some of the macro stories of the draft. Uh, not so much team-oriented, but uh, just in terms of some of the players involved. I mean, one of the interesting things for me is, and I, I had the immediate reaction, and I must applaud you, Jason, for getting this right on your mock draft, that uh, Trayvon Walker would actually go first overall uh, from Georgia, super talented player, but one of the thinnest resumes of a number one overall player. I, I kept saying shades of Eric Fisher in 2013 as far as a real head-scratcher for number one. Or if you want to really be mean, Anthony Bennett in 2013 in another sport. But uh, again, that was kind of a weird thing here, and that uh, teams at quarterback uh, were even smarter than I expected they would be because uh, I had uh, Malik Willis going six to Carolina, and uh, they didn't do that. Uh, props to you for not uh, doing that, uh, Jason. Uh, but uh, Kenny Pickett going 20 to the Steelers, that seemed pretty obvious to a lot of people. Uh, that is the one that did end up happening. The, the other quarterbacks fell to where they deserved to fall because outside of uh, Pickett, you really have to squint to see these guys as starters, uh, certainly immediately and maybe even down the road, at least high-level starters, which is what the best quarterbacks in the draft are supposed to be. So on either these or any other subjects of notable players that uh, rose or fell, uh, take it away, Jason. Um, I did want to jump back to, because one of the areas we were talking about leading into this was receiver. And yeah. as we talked about it in the pre-show, I think there's a lot of things that we liked about a lot of players. Receivers. Uh, you can make the argument for quarterback, but I think it's harder. Uh, defensive ends, defensive backs. There were a lot of areas that we thought had really good concentration. Um, and one of the areas, uh, you guys mentioned George Pickens earlier. Yep. Um, uh, while I, during the draft, I was actually uh, going back and forth uh, with a friend of ours uh, from the, the Pizzle, was it the Club Pizzle uh, podcast? Oh, Don Peterson. I, I'm actually going to be on there plugging uh, the uh, top 75 players in pro basketball history sometime soon. So uh, great, to, great to hear Don's name mentioned. Yeah, so if you get a chance, check, check out Club Pizzle real quick. Um, but... We were going back and forth on George Pickens. He was thinking George Pickens by the time we were at, like, pick 25 for 44. And I, I didn't get there until Christian Watson came off the board. And then it was this big, urgent thing. Like, you got to get him the last one before the tear break. And the more I thought about it after the fact, uh, I just, he, you know, he looks the part, but there's so much maturity drama there that I'm not surprised if we were to find out he wasn't even on Barry's board. Um, I, I did want to just jump around real quick, if we could, though, highlight a few of these. Kayvon Thibodeau, I think, is going to be fun to come back and look at. Yep. Um, I'm not necessarily saying the Giants were necessarily the best place to go, but I'm glad that he went where he went. Uh, the Trayvon Walker thing, I mean, that's, that's fun because like, you kind of have to just – I just looked at it and said, I, I think it's too boring for Jacksonville for some reason. Mm -hmm. uh, and there was some chatter – that they were falling in love with his upside. And whenever that happens, depending on ownership, it's almost a given. They're just going to go with, like, the hot pick, whatever's sexy at the time. Um, so, yeah, I changed that, I believe, a week before and kind of rode with it. But let's take a moment on quarterback real quick, because I'm going to say something now that's kind of shocking. I was um, less vocal about Willis than I probably should have trusted myself to be. Mm -hmm. uh, but with everyone else in the country just 
clamoring about how great he's going to be. I thought I was the only person in the civilized world watching his tape going, is anybody else seeing this? Like, can he throw it a mile? Yes, but so can Jamarcus Russell. Can he run? Yes, but he's a one-read and running quarterback. He has as many bad throws as he has good ones. He has uh, in-game decisions that are just mind-blowing. Almost like, who are you throwing to kind of decision. So his fall felt realistically perfect to me. Um, and I think had Pittsburgh not taken Pickett, I don't think he would have gone in the first round. I think we need to really seriously brace ourselves for the possibility that what I've been saying this whole time might actually be true. There might not be a single quarterback in this entire draft class that projects as a better prospect than Sam Darnold. So don't be surprised at what happened. Don't look at this and say, oh my God, everybody passed on quarterback. What's wrong with them? When the entire league looks at the entire position group and goes, yeah, nah, pass. Chances are there's something to that. And again, the, the last thing I'll say about anybody in with specific, um, I thought it was interesting that Sauce Gardner was the popular corner at the top, but Singley went first. And yet, there's a part of me that says, well, that makes sense, because you're talking about technician versus, you know, ball hawk athletic guy. But you can also make that argument for a number of other position groups. And that whole dynamic of Stingley over Sauce Gardner or um, where Karloftis fell to, which I know is in range, but I did think that uh, there was somebody in there I thought was going to go after he did. The linebacker situation in general was very fluid, and I think there was an idea that if you need linebacker, any one of the top five would have been fine. Yet you have Green Bay thinking they need to take Quay Walker in the first round. So there was a lot of like little shuffling of here's what everyone seems to believe is true. And then there'd be like one little outlier at the top telling me that nobody had a consensus understanding of where any of these guys fit. The Devontae Wyatt slide, if you want to call it that, I, I kind of predicted it, but I thought it was no farther than it did. Um, but by and large, to Chris's previous point, which I guess is kind of my previous point to that is that this was never going to be the draft where you're going to get your Peyton Mannings or your Patrick Peterson's those perfect prospects that are can't miss prospects. I don't know that there's not a single can't miss prospect in this entire draft from one on down. So we can look at this and get kind of nitpicky about it. But at the end of the day, I think a lot of teams got better, but they got better in very specific ways, and none of those ways were by drafting the face of their franchise. Very well said. A couple points there. On the Trayvon Walker thing, especially as far as upside, that would have been influenced heavily by their head of analytics, Tony Khan, better known these days, and he also works for his father's English Premier League soccer team, but better known these days for the amazing, wonderful AEW promotion seen weekly on TNT and TBS, and he's a genius as a wrestling promoter. But on some of these things with their analytics, a little bit kind of hit and miss. I heard an interview in the fall that was kind of funny. He was promoting when they were doing the Arthur Ashe show, and it was an amazing thing. They fit 20,000 people at Arthur Ashe Stadium. It was quite a spectacle, but he's doing the New York media things there, and they're asking him about the Jaguars, which he didn't want to talk about at that time. 
But then he just blurts out out of nowhere, I'm the guy who discovered James Robinson. And I was like, that's pretty funny to just kind of blurt that out. That was kind of amusing. But uh, yeah, as far as it went here, and I also felt like our friend Russ Cohen, FDH Lounge dignitary and sportsology proprietor, uh, he owes a fruit basket to Atlanta for uh, reaching uh, on their pick of Drake London because that probably would have been the Jets at 10. Let's be honest. Uh, it wouldn't have been the Jets taking uh, uh, Garrett Wilson if Drake London was still available. So he owes him that. But uh, in terms of looking at this here, oh, and by the way, steal of the draft to Kobe Dean, I think it was third round to the Eagles. Uh, I don't give a crap if there's any medical red flags, whatever. That guy is going to be a stud on that defense. So in this same vein, Chris, uh, any of your thoughts on the specific players rising or falling? I thought the funniest tweet I saw uh, over the weekend was somebody tweeted out about Dean. They said, either this guy's medicals are far worse than any of us know, or he's a serial killer. Because <laughs> 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 what, is, what is going on? Right. Um, the tape doesn't lie on that. You know, my thoughts um, to Jason's claim about the quarterbacks, I, I, I none of us like any of the quarterbacks. Right. Um, I, I, like Jason, kept questioning myself when, People would, you know, they, they would ooh and ah over um, Lee Willis, and I'd be like, I don't see it. What am I, you know, I, I, the only thing I could, you know, sort of squint my eyes and be like, well, I, I guess it's three years down the road and a lot of amazing development, and you're projecting, 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 but is that what you do with a first-round pick? Um, it's such an important position, and clearly all those teams told us they felt the same way. Mm-hmm. These, none of these quarterbacks were worth the reach. And I that come up, are they learning? You know, are they like AI? Like, they are learning. Like, they're starting to get smarter. Like, yes, you need a quarterback, Seattle. But you're not going to reach three rounds ahead of where you should draft a quarterback. Or, you know, same thing, Carolina, you know, or Atlanta. You're not going to, you know, it seems like they all stayed within themselves. And I honestly sit there and think, oh my God, there's some learn. They're getting smarter. Thibodeau, Rick, I told you, man, he, I, I told you there wouldn't be a slide. I I just, I never believed there would be. But, um, yeah, he was fifth. He was the fifth. Fifth, fifth. fifth. okay. Um, so, I mean, you know, that's, I, you know, look, that's not, I, that's not a slide. Okay. That's, that's you know, uh, that's interchangeable on need and whatnot. And then, um, uh, yeah, you're right. I hated the, the, the Jackson pick by Atlanta. Uh-huh. Russ Cohen should be thrilled about that. Yeah. Um, but uh, also, a guy I told both of you in the pre-draft show that I love, I had as my number one guy in this draft, is Stingley. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, you, I know you kind of, I verbally heard you sort of look at me cross-eyed. Um, but I really believe that, you know, two years from now, we're going to be looking back on that pick and be like, yeah, that dude's the real deal. Um, and that's not to say the others, you know, others like Thibodeau may not be, you know, great players too. They could be. But I really like Stingley a lot when I when I watched him on on tape. And, um, and, and I had him higher than Sauce Gardner um, because I think the way the league is going, it's, it's moving towards where Stingley is in terms of skill set versus where Gardner is. So um, those are, you know, those are, that was one that I, just, you know, I, I when the Texans came up at third, I looked at my buddy. I was watching the draft, and I go, "It's going to be Stingley." Like, was Stingley, no way. And I go, "Yep." Yeah. And boy, God, you know, they they snatched him. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I 
uh, there weren't any great surprises, I thought, you know, where I was like, well, other than the Patriots. But honestly, before the Patriots made that pick, you know, my buddy who's a Patriots fan, you know, I famously every year always remind him of the Logan Mankins draft. Um, and I'll never forget that year when we were watching the draft together and they picked the Logan Mankins and my buddy with outrage just, just was like, who? Um, <laughs> and uh, I said, you know, I told him, I said, you wait. And I said, this is going to be your Logan Mankins moment. Sure enough, it happened. I mean, he was just, <laughs> he was apoplectic. He was beside himself. <laughs> on, on, on Thursday night. I mean, he was just, he's like, you know, just cursing Bill Belichick. But, you know, again, I think i think a lot of these guys, to Jason's point, they went where they went because of team needs system. And, and, and I think the boards were kind of all over the place because of those factors and because there were not clear-cut guys that were, to, to what he said, like the Patrick Petersons or the Jalen Ramsey's or these guys that you're like, that guy is, uh, you know, Andrew Luck, like that guy is a surefire thing. Th- there weren't any of those. And so I think boards were kind of all over the place based on what they want to do. Um, so from that standpoint, I guess there just really weren't any real surprises in, in how this played out. Well, yeah, I would kind of agree with that. And uh, the last question I want to put to you guys in terms of winners and losers I want to use this specific prism, and I'm going to use it in the prism uh, of uh, the FDH updated power rankings after the draft here. I'm going to define for these purposes winners and losers by teams that rose or fell in the overall landscape of the draft by what they did. So I'll give you a couple of them from my perspective. The fact I now have Kansas City number one because they don't have any more needs to be filled, uh, I think they're a winner. Baltimore coming in at number three. I sure as heck didn't have them number three beforehand. Uh, Cleveland, I, I had it maybe the cusp of the top ten, but I've got them number seven now at this point uh, because of the kind of draft that they had. And uh, other teams, I think, that uh, moved up. Uh, Philadelphia 13, they were a regression candidate, I thought. I thought they were a team that was primed to regress off of last year, a fluke playoff appearance. And, uh, again, uh, I've, I've got them as more of a legitimate contender in a super, super thin NFC at this point. Uh, conversely, teams that I have falling based on what happened here, uh, as much as I hate to say it, with uh, the Miami Dolphins ascending from 1A to 1 for me at this point in time here, uh, only number 14 in the power rankings. I felt like uh, uh, neglecting the defense with any kind of impact players with the picks that they had or potential impact players is going to come back to bite them. Now it's a question of not just can Tua get it done with this great talent around him, but can he get it done in order to win, you know, 35 to 31 games? And that's another story altogether. Uh, the LA Chargers at 16 overall, they have a lot of needs left. Uh, I, I just, their, their offseason's been a head scratcher to me. Uh, Tennessee also has a lot of needs. I have them at number 17. Denver at number 18, I felt like missed possibilities to advance here. Uh, and to a certain extent, Las Vegas at 19. And these are teams that a lot of people are penciling in that I think are sort of just on the periphery of the playoff chase at this point. By the way, as far as winners go, I got the Jets at 23, and I'd had them probably hovering around 30 before this. So I think that the Jets, relatively speaking, are a winner, as with Houston at 24. But uh, losers in this as well. I think New Orleans continues a very, very... Uh, messy off season here. I've got them at uh, number 30. I think they're definitely one of the losers of this draft as well. 
Uh, I I think a lot of us figured they might be a bad team, but this is this draft. I think it's just sort of the confirmation. 2022 is not going to go their way. So in terms of teams rising or falling on the landscape for next year, based on the job that they did this past weekend, I'll start with you, Jason. Any of your candidates for up or down? Jacksonville. I don't know what they're doing. <laughs> uh, I think even though Detroit is relatively low, I think there were some picks that they made that dramatically changed things. I've, I've been a huge fan of Davis Williams. So I honestly think that's a big splash move. I think they're going to do better. I think we're going to be looking at them at the end of the season power rankings and find them to be sort of in the fringe of that ascending or they're kind of becoming decent. Mm-hmm. So they still won't be good yet. Uh, Atlanta's a dumpster fire. Uh, Houston. I'll be honest, Houston was interesting because they've been this idea ever since Watson stopped playing for them where you're just like, wow, that is about as bad as the team gets in the NFL. It's, it's ugly. But they are slowly crawling up, which I like. I can't wait for the bubble to burst on Pittsburgh because I'm getting so tired of them just always finding accidental ways to win. Right. Um, and I don't think they necessarily made themselves better. No. Nope. So that'll either hold or they'll fall from there. Um, I, I think you're absolutely right about these teams in the middle, the, the Vegas, the Denver's. You can make an argument for New England under the legacy of Bill Belichick. Um, and then Miami. I think Minnesota did themselves a disservice. And I think Miami just said we're going to get what we like and move on. Um, what's interesting, though, Philly, and we are I, I assume we're all giving Philly credit for A.J. Brown. Yes. As part of this. Yes. Uh, but I really like what they did because I think we all would have been in some sort of agreement that this is kind of risky. If they go in and Roseman is just kind of ho-hum the whole time and just kind of picks whatever, then they're in trouble. But they made some serious moves there that I like. And then, um, well, I don't love everything the Colts did. They did get better. Um, and then everybody at the top of the list, obviously, um, got better with the exception of the Rams, just because, again, I think they're another candidate where they said, I don't like what I'm looking at, and I'm just going to pick what I like. Well, and the thing with Philly is that, uh, and I've made this comment before on the show, Howie Roseman is the J.R. Smith of general managers. I mean, there are moments where he is like J.R. Smith in game one of the 2018 NBA Finals at the end, and there are games where he is like the J.R. Smith of uh, Game 7 of the 2016 NBA Finals when he scored like seven points in a row in the second half to bring the Cavs back. I mean, you love him or you hate him. I'm not sure we've seen an executive in any sport who goes through these highs and lows the way that he does. But this this was good JR, if you will, for how he, uh, this, this past weekend, I felt like. So I'm going to throw it to you, Chris. And uh, again, winners and losers based on advancement and decline on the league landscape. I think there are some Eagles fans that would like Howie to beat uh, the third uh, iteration of J.R. Smith and, and go play golf. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, um, I, there are some teams that, you know, again, I really liked what the Jets did. I, I thought they played hard. I mean, I have a lot of questions about Salah as a coach, but I thought they played hard for him last year. Um, and I think they added real talent that's going to help out this year in, in rounds one and two. I, I, you know, these guys are all going to start. Um, Brees Hall, Johnson, Wilson, Gardner, they're all going to start. And, and, and so I think they help themselves a lot. 
Um, another team that I, you know, that I really liked, actually what they did was, um, I actually liked what Detroit, I did like what Detroit did. I, I thought that, you know, they they got guys that are going to start and, and, or at least immediately help out in terms of uh, Hutchison will start, you know, Will, Williams will start, Pascal will be a role guy this year, but they, I, you know, they help themselves. I think Mitchell down the road, Jimmy Tech tight end, the guy that could, um, you know, uh, help out down the road. So they got some future guys, and they got a couple guys that are going to be, I, you know, right off the gate starters and could be make that team better. I, I don't, I didn't really care for the the Packers draft to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of guys there that just aren't going to make that team at all. So watch the waiver wires if your other if your other teams. Colts. I mean, I liked Alec Pierce. I know I expressed that beforehand. I think he's this year's Cooper Cup potential. And um, so when they grabbed him at fifty-three, I was like, ah, that was a guy I, you know, I really wanted us to get the Browns. And obviously, you know, Barry could have at forty-four, and, and he didn't like him. Another team that you know, and again, I thought great draft. How do you move up from the top by having a good draft? The Chiefs. I think the Chiefs, they they really helped themselves and put some talent, you know, back into the pipeline on that on that roster with McDuffie, Karloftis, um, Sky Moore, uh, Brian Cook at the safety out of Cincinnati. You know, but, you know, they didn't move up the hierarchy, right? They just maintained. They had a solid draft that maintained. Um, I agree with Jason. I don't know what the hell the Chargers are doing. I, right. In years past, I, I have many times liked their drafts. This year, I went shaking my head, going, "I don't know what that was." I honestly, I felt the same way about uh, the Rams draft. I was like, "Yeah, okay." Right. I felt that way about the Raiders draft. There were a lot of teams where their draft, I was just like, "Yeah, you know, sort of, eh, just didn't, you know, didn't move me." I'm going to make a bold statement too about the Patriots. They haven't drafted well in about seven years. Right. And Robert Kraft has publicly bitched about we got to get better at drafting. And um, I think that's a team that, based on this draft, brought in no starters that are going to help them right now. So I think that Kraft, don't be shocked, and I'm I'll be I'm going to be the first to say it. Don't be shocked if this draft class provides nothing, and the Patriots were not a very good team last year that sort of backed their way into the into the playoffs. You know, in the middle of that schedule last year. They, they went on a run because they were playing teams that were racked with injury or COVID or whatever, and they sort of, they won a bunch of games, and then they lost a bunch of games going into the postseason. They looked like shit. They couldn't stop anybody. Their, their linebackers can't cover in space. They did not address that at all. Dean would have been a guy, I swear, or Roy, that they would have grabbed and tried to address that problem. Um they're not going to improve that situation with a guy like Wilson that uh, they traded for Brown because he can't, he's not a good cover guy. He's, he's a run guy. Another, again, another guy that they'll like. Don't be shocked if Kraft, if they stumble out of the playoffs and kind of crash this year, and Kraft uses the failure of the season and another bad draft to clean house. And I know that will be shocking for people to say. But I think Robert Kraft now is seeing the fact that that equation of is it is it Belichick or is it Brady? I think he knows now where a lot more of that credit needed to go to, and I wouldn't be shocked if he cleaned house after next year if they bomb out and it's not a good draft and they don't make the playoffs. 
I think Kraft won't hesitate to say, it's time to retire, Bill, and we're going to get rid of all your guys. I'm not making Matt Patricia the next head coach <laughs> or your son or anything like that. Um, and he's smart enough to look around at the McVeighs and these other young guys and say, that's the direction I need to go. So I'll be the first to say it. Don't be shocked if this draft in the season ends up being Bill's last. I mean, that's one of the biggest clip and save uh, predictions we've had on this show in a long time. That will be, we will be replaying this endlessly if that comes to pass. And I have to say, too, a, a, a follow-up on that, Chris. For any of the criticism in recent years, because, uh, again, he had Nick Casario in there doing the stuff with him of, like, who's to blame for somebody's draft, him or Casario? You look at the pretty good draft they had in Houston, along with another stinker in New England, and I think the answer to that is getting rapidly answered. Well, I think Bill has fallen into the trap of thinking that he is Bill, and he's the smartest guy, and he goes and intentionally tries to find these guys that that no one else believes in, you know, three rounds before that anyone else would draft them, because he's smarter than everybody else. Um, and, and, and I'm sorry, I just don't think he is. Um, I don't buy it, I, and, and so I, I, I think that Kraft is looking at this very critically, so we shall see. If, if he loses his job to, like, some, you know, 24-year-old kid with a faux hawk, I will laugh my ass off. That will be <laughs> such great revenge for what happened in Cleveland in the 90s, but uh, I have to say before we're all done here, Jason, I, I got to hear you react to this uh, prediction here. you you got to have some thoughts on what we just heard. Or maybe not. It appears Jason might have dropped. Well, at any rate, uh, again, I want to thank both. I, Rick, Rick, I think that's what you called. I, it was such a bold prediction. I left him speechless. I, I think you did. I think you did. And I was about to wrap this sucker up anyway. So, uh, again, I want to thank uh, both of you guys for being here. Jason Jones, Chris Galloway. Uh, again, our draft coverage preview and review every year is always one of the very big highlights of the calendar year here on this show, and you just heard why once again. Can't wait for the next time of chopping it up with both of these guys talking football uh, or individually doing so. But uh, again, for Jason Jones and Chris Galloway, I'm Rick Morris. Thank you for joining us for this mini-episode of the FDH Lounge.